I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and this is Writers on Writing. Writers on Writing focuses on the art, craft, and business of writing. My guest today is novelist Susan Strait, author of Mecca. Susan is the author of eight novels, including the national bestseller, I Wire Moon, a finalist for the National Book Award, as well as the memoir, In the Country of Women, named a best book of 2019 by NPR. Her stories and essays have been published in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Harper's, and other publications. Her new novel is Mecca, published by FSG, and is the focus of our talk today. We talked about writing about the unrepresented people of Southern California, mashing up genres, first sentences and first pages, and so much more. If you like what you hear today and you find that it helps you with your own writing, consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Every little bit helps Marie and me to continue producing the show. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. Now for the show. Of course, it's wonderful to talk with you again. You were on with your memoir. I think that's the last time we actually talked um, about books. And now Mecca. And I want you to tell me, although I think I know where the book came from, but as if I don't know, tell me where it came from. How did this idea come about? We had a great time talking about In the Country of Women. That was so fun. That was in person. And it's funny because that was in Newport Beach. And um, I remember I drove down. It was Lido Books. And I parked at the Newport Beach Elks Lodge. Remember? <laughs> because I'm a, I'm a uh, Riverside Elks Lodge member. That's right. So they took me into the lodge. And they're asking me about Riverside. And of course, I saw somebody I knew. And I'm telling you that because everyone thinks of Southern California as this giant place where no one ever knows each other and you know that's not true and that's part of what Mecca is about it's about all these disparate theming communities in Southern California but you have all these people who are indigenous to Southern California who have such deep roots that of course they know everyone and there's so many family secrets so this book actually became to me like this testament to family in Southern California and I will tell you that Johnny Frias is the seventh generation uh, Californian and he's, you know, born in Santa Ana, lives in the Chino Hills on a rancho. That's the last name of the owner is Anza. So I was writing about people who have been here forever, forever, like the people who came with the Anza party in 1774. And Johnny Frias is a descendant of his mom who, crossed the border from Mexico with the Anza party and his dad who came from Jalisco in the 1900s. So Johnny Briggs is a California Highway Patrol officer. He's a motorcycle officer. Mm -hmm. And his story came to me from my friend, Louis Lozano, who's from Corona, mm -hmm. who Barbara used to sit on my porch, has sat on my porch for the last 23 years telling me stories. And he wanted to be a CHP officer. Mm -hmm. And he was told, oh, like you're a Mexican guy. You can't do that. And just so many of the different stories, like there's a time when Johnny is in a fight for his life and he knows how to kill someone with three 
particularly placed punches. And Louis Lozano told me that story too. Um, so there's that thread. And then the other thread is Jimena, who is a young woman from Oaxaca who's only 19 and crosses the border and is working in the Coachella Valley. And I've been writing about her for, for 12 years. I've been writing mm -hmm. stories about this young woman. I really loved her. Um, yeah, there are a lot of different characters in the book, but they all have these interconnections um, because, because that's how Southern California really is. Mm -hmm. And some of the pieces were published prior, yes? Uh, that I loved, I loved this notion. In fact, I wrote this essay about Louise Erdrich and the polyphonic novel for Lit Hub because this past two years working on this book, I realized that I love that form, the novel with multiple narrators, mm -hmm. because Louise Erdrich's short story Scales was one of the first things I ever read uh, when I was a junior in college at USC. Mm -hmm. And some of the other polyphonic novels that I have loved over the years are by so many different writers, uh, James Welch, Elena Maria Veramontes. Um, so, what I did was I'd been thinking about Johnny Frias since 2009. And I think, you know, um, which is really funny, that was in Orange County Noir. Mm -hmm. I wrote about Johnny Frias killing a man in this canyon, this secret canyon, because he was trying to protect a stranger from what he thought was going to be death. And so this is the secret that he harbors. And I wrote that for Orange County Noir in 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. So that story stayed in my mind, but I wasn't quite sure about Johnny's trajectory. So I wrote another story about Jimena. And then I wrote a story about a character named Matalas, who is the most like me and my friends. She's a single mom. She's from, you know, a place like Riverside. And she's got these two boys and she works as a florist. And so, yes, I published some of those as stories. And then I realized that some of the characters were mentioned. Mm -hmm. in the other stories and I thought oh these people all know each other so I love the I love teaching my students and also talking to writers about novels that are like a chorus of voices and that's that's definitely what this came out to be yeah I love that structure too um Johnny Frias is interesting I love his uh his thing with words and idioms you know like why is it holy smoke and not holy salmon? Why is it this? Why is it that? <laughs> is that something your friend did too? No, no. Louis from Corona. And like, if Louis and I are talking, it'll be like they're Spanish. Like Louis and I are the same exact age. So if, if it's somebody I grew up with, you know, we'll be like, well, that was some pendejada, you know, or like, oh, look, he won't even pass the pelota. How are they going to score? That part is easy. But the, the actual part where Johnny Freese is obsessed with speaking American completely comes from me being like the child of someone who was an immigrant. Mm. My mom is from Switzerland. My stepdad's from Canada. And I was fascinated with my mom wanted to speak perfect English. And so she learned English from Vin Scully. So doing daughter <laughs> broadcasts. So just imagine like some of the idioms that she was okay with from being a lifelong baseball fan from the time she got here at 19. So there were other things that my mother would never understand or never say. Things like holy cow or holy smoke. She would never say that. Mm -hmm. But my real dad was, he had a terrible life in Colorado. 
you know, grew up on a ranch at, in the coldest town, Frazier, coldest town in America, never got to sleep inside. His dad made him sleep out in the barn. He almost froze to death many times, but that's that old like gun smoke kind of, mm-hmm. you know, where Festus on gun smoke is like, you know, <laughs> you can bet your Sunday socks that he's going to get pie eye down at the watering hole. That's literally like how my dad would talk, my real dad. So as you also know, I met my future husband in the eighth grade and his dad was from Oklahoma and his mom was from Mississippi. So there was a whole nother layer of American language. I was always obsessed with that. And Johnny, um, it's like many of my friends where we were navigating between so many different languages, but it was really the ability to speak American. Mm-hmm. And American is such a crazy, you know, holy mackerel, holy smokes, holy cow. That's it. There's <laughs> never, there's never like, like you right. said, it's not holy salmon. So where did holy <laughs> mackerel come from? And it's not like holy lion, it's holy cow. I had fun writing about that. And my friends and I always have fun making making up like things that people say. Hmm. You know, I was thinking as you as you were just talking, I don't think I ever asked you how you came to writing. Oh, you know, as many times as we've talked, girl, that's pretty funny. Um, I, I wrote an essay for the LA Times maybe three or four years ago, maybe four years ago. And uh, it was, it's one of the most popular things I ever wrote. And it was that my dad, my stepdad, who's from Canada, uh, caught me with a can of beer. One can of beer uh, changed my life and made me into a writer. And the, the funny thing was, my mother ran me over accidentally when I was in the eighth grade and I wanted to be a cheerleader. She thought cheerleading was stupid. So, I mean, she ran me over accidentally, but I clearly was not going to be a cheerleader. It, I was in traction for two months and then I don't want to walk again. During that time, I read in the hospital. Mm-hmm. I'd always read, but I had this really kind, the, the teacher who comes to you when you're in the hospital for two months and you can't get out of bed. Mm-hmm. Um, she brought me books. And then freshman year, just a year later, uh, my best friend and I were going to try to sneak beer down to these 18-year-olds that thought it'd be fun to have 14-year-old girlfriends. And she never got caught, but I always got caught because I had immigrant parents and they have very, very good eyes. <laughs> so I got caught with this can of beer. And then my friends ended up, when I was 15, um, they ended up selling a lot of drugs, these three girlfriends of mine. And I wasn't allowed to be with them. And my mom never got to graduate from high school. She went to Riverside city college Hmm. to get an AA, you know, and she was in, she was in an English class and a history class. And she made me go to summer school. She said, you, you have to sign up for summer school because your friends are selling drugs. Can you imagine I'm 15 and I'm a girl. (laughs) So I take a creative writing class and a health sciences class and the creative writing class. I'm 15 girl. Everybody else in there is like, you know, at least 18 or 20. And there were people in there that were in their thirties and even a couple of men in their forties. I wrote a couple of short stories and the professor who was born in Long Beach, his name was uh, Bill Bowers. He was a desert rat who loved Joshua Tree back then. He called me into his office and said, you're the real thing, like you're a writer. And I'd written these three short stories and they were maybe four pages each. And um, he read one of them out loud in class because I was too afraid to. And that was that feeling, you know, that I could do something well. And also the, ability to, I really loved using language. Like I was describing the mountains of Idlewild and actually I was describing like finding scorpions in our sleeping bags when we used to sleep on the ground at Anza Borrego. 
I was already writing about California. Right? <laughs> it, it takes the kindness of someone like a professor like Bill Bowers sometimes to change your life when I was only 15. So I wrote my first real short stories then. And then I became a sports writer when I went to USC, but I always wanted to take fiction. And I had a couple of great professors at USC. Um, T.C. Boyle, Tom Boyle was really encouraging to me. And um, then James Baldwin was my teacher for graduate school when I was getting my MFA. I was already married. I was only 22 and I had James Baldwin for a teacher. Hmm. I got really lucky. Um, but yeah, thanks for asking because my path is quite different from, I'd say, most people's path in that I got caught with a can of Olympia in my jeans jacket. It was June and my mom's like, why are you wearing a jacket? It's June. <laughs> You're like, oh, just a little chilly, a little, little chilly. chilly. And she said, mm, why is it heavier on one side? And I was like, <laughs> huh? Yeah, I think in um in your memoir you you wrote about James Baldwin about yeah. yeah. That was a big deal for me and my mom was a big deal. You know, she she was really mean to me because she thought being a writer was a dumb idea, but she thought I'd make a very good secretary. So, you know, I <laughs> typed very fast and um then she wanted to be to be a sports writer so she could meet Vin Scully even though she was married and so was Vin <laughs> Scully. It was the like the dream of her life to to meet Vince Scully and shake his hand, if you can imagine that. So I was a sports writer, but you know, Barbara, writing about sports was perfect because I mean, I grew up in a neighborhood that was pretty poor and either you like were selling drugs or you got good at sports, but to be a an intellectual, like, like I can say now that I was, I mean, I was this really smart little kid who didn't have much money navigating both of those worlds it's pretty funny because here I am writing about Johnny Frias and he's you know he needs dad are lifelong Dodger fans and my mom is 88 and I'm going to see her after we talk today I'll go pick her up and we will play rummy cube and then we'll watch the Dodgers and she has dementia she has a 30 second memory pretty much mm -hmm. she doesn't know who's on the Dodgers but she knows they better beat the Giants that's her favorite <laughs> thing to say I think I always wanted to write about our homeland, you know, to write about our SoCal is to write about the Dodgers and the angels. And you're mm -hmm. going to laugh, but I, I'm working on my new book now. And um, as you know, I, I just had COVID and my new book is a sequel to Mecca. Mm -hmm. and Johnny Frias and his dad live on this rancho. They raise cattle in the Chino Hills um, with two guides, the Vargas brothers who were in their eighties. And people don't realize, like, I have a lot of friends who raise longhorn cattle, like, out in a canyon. <laughs> and my ex-husband, Dwayne, who will also come over after I take my mom home, he has this friend uh, that raises bison still in Fontana. So I wanted to write about that kind of secret life where people are raising longhorn cattle and then listening to the doctors on their little radio in their pocket and, and picking oranges. Um, mm. so, so what I was working on this morning is a guy who gets in a fight because an Angels fan punches a Dodgers fan. <laughs> and, um, I thought, well, this is very, this is very dark and it's, it's in Santa Ana. And um, yeah, I wanted to write about our SoCal. You know, speaking of dark, I was thinking about this and your work because you kind of mash up genres, you know, you write literary fiction, you write crime fiction. Um, you've, you've, won awards in for different genres that you do. And 
Are you thinking about that when you're writing? Are you thinking about categories or where your book's going to go on the shelf or how it's going to be categorized? Or are you just going with the story and however it turns out, it turns out? You know, I think that's, no one's ever asked me that question before. And it's not something that I think about while I'm writing, but sometimes it's what I think about after one of my books come out. Like, like Mecca has gotten such great reviews. I've been so fortunate. I mean, but it's been reviewed as everything, like you said, from literary fiction to, you know, California fiction to fiction with a very dark sort of plot. And um, I see, you know, behind you, you have the noir series too. And I've really enjoyed the Akashic noir series. And that's what I won the Edgar for was mm -hmm. a story that became a chapter in my 2012 book, Between yes. Heaven and Here. And that book was about a young woman who's found murdered and her body is in a shopping cart. And my brother-in-law found her. Hmm. Like 10 years before I wrote that book, my brother-in-law was walking down the street at dawn. He was headed to the park, you know, for whatever nefarious reasons. He has like, he had like 12 girlfriends at the time. He's a very good looking man, uh, my brother-in-law general. And he passed the shopping cart and he said to me, sis, I thought it was closed in there. And hmm. I looked and he said it wasn't closed. And so no one cared about this young woman. She was only 17 and she was pregnant. And that just stayed on my mind. And that became um, Between Heaven and Here, which you're right, it is a noir story, but it was in 2012 and it was kind of a, people looked at noir in a different way then, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? That was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So that won the Edgar Award, but it came from me actually hearing that young woman's mom say, it, this is a young uh, black girl who's been found murdered, no one's ever going to care about who did it. Sure. And that just broke my heart. So I, I wrote about the death of this beautiful woman. Then this new book, Mecca, Madalas, the character Madalas, she's cousins with that young woman who was killed. And she knows a lot of the main characters from that book too. That's, I think, because our family is so, my family is so big. You know, I have like four or 500 people on my married side of my family. Mm. And then, you know, there's another hundred people on like my side of my family. And then when you live in a neighborhood for 30, I've lived on my block for, moved in here in 88. So I've lived on my block for 34 years. So there's people on my block that, you know, call me auntie or la vieja or like whatever. I think what noir means is family secrets Usually, if you go back to mm -hmm. some of our favorites, like Ross McDonald, but even Janet Fitch, you know, and one of my, two of my favorite writers, Michael Connolly and Walter Mosley, look at all those noir things that happen, whether it's murders or the concealment of evidence, it almost always comes down to some kind of family secret or something that someone doesn't want revealed. Mm -hmm. I just finished reading uh, Michael Connolly's the Black Echo mm -hmm. you know, it came out 30 years ago and we had this great event. He's so, so nice. And um, I had him sign a copy of Black Echo for Dwayne, for my ex-husband, because that was one of his favorite books. So I reread The Black Echo and um, Michael Connolly's deal with, with Harry Bosch is everybody counts or nobody counts. Like he has mm -hmm. teachers who say that. That's exactly the way I think of with Johnny Frias is that Everyone in his life, whether it's his friend, Manny Delgado, or his friend, Grief Embers, they are all in it for life, these four guys. Mm -hmm. And that's like familia, you know, like that's the way 
that's the way both school people work. Even if you were just friends and you're friends for 50 years and your family, right? Hmm. Speaking of Michael Connolly, he called Mecca a masterpiece. <laughs> it was very nice. It's very nice. Nicer than nice, right? <laughs> Michael Connolly <laughs> and I go way back. This is a funny one too. So I had my three little kids, my three daughters, as you know, I was a single mom and Michael Connolly, he had, he had written um, Black Ice. So Black Echo came out 30 years ago. So Black Ice came out after that. So I'd say my kids were really little. Rosette was a baby. She must've been maybe a year or two old. And I packed him up and drove all the way to Mysterious. What was it? Mysterious, Mysterious Galaxy. Galaxy? maybe there was mysterious books. So there was a bookstore in orange mm. and I drove all the way down there to get Michael Connolly to sign my book. Book Carnival. Yes. Book Carnival. That's mm. what it was. Thank you so much. Cause I keep trying to remember. So Michael Connolly looks up and he sees me there and he's like, what do you wait? Aren't you, aren't you Susan straight? Cause I waited till the end. Cause I had all my kids. Right. And they were looking at the children's books. So they were lying on the ground looking at the children's books. And I'm listening to Michael Connolly talk about, black eyes right mm -hmm. and he just said what do you and I'm like you know my my I love your books like I'm a big fan and we've been like we only would see each other once or twice a year at something like LA Times Book Festival so Michael Connolly's mom and my mom were both bank tellers mm -hmm. we both have this way of looking <laughs> at the world where we hear these super dark stories but we kind of just want to take them apart like a puzzle mm -hmm. figure out what they are and he has just been so fun to talk to over the years. I love all the little details in the Bosch novels, in Walter Mosley's novels. Mm -hmm. I like Ivy Pakoda's work. I really love Steph Chaw's novel, Your House Will Pay, but I liked her early stuff too. Mm -hmm. um, again, going back to Janet Fitch, Wanda Coleman wrote some very dark and beautiful stories. And you know who else? So did Kate Braverman and Carolyn C. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say Helena Maria Vermontes is again, one of my OG, like that's one of my favorite people and writers in the world. And she and I, when we get together, we, we have only seen each other every maybe couple of years. And we'll just have these intense conversations about the darknesses mm. that we have experienced in our lives because of where we live, you know, the people that we've lost because we've grown up around people that lived real hard. And it's funny, I have this little piece of paper right here that I just was thinking about. I have these two things, especially for people who are listening that might be writers. This is my Helena Maria Vermontes post-it, and this is my Loretta Lynn post-it. So you'll like this. <laughs> Helena, Maria, Helena Maria Vermontes says, writing is how I pray. It connects me to the voices above. And this one, I wrote these in 2017. And I had them on my computer all this time because they were helpful for both the memoir and really helpful for Mecca. Mm -hmm. This is Loretta Lynn, 2017. If you write about what's happening, it don't hurt as bad. <laughs> it don't bother you as much. That's how it does me. I don't know how anybody else does it, but that's the way I do it. I need to write. And mm -hmm. this is because Loretta Lynn had written a memoir, her first mm -hmm. book, and mm -hmm. she was being interviewed. And I wrote that down while she was talking. And I just thought, yeah, so I think Michael Connolly and a lot of us who are writing noir, but also writing character. Really, we're always writing about the characters. Don't you think so? 
I think so. I mean, doesn't that where isn't that where it begins? Really? Where it all begins. I mean, for you, when you and I talk, when we see each other at a festival or wherever, the books that we love the best begin with character and landscape, mm-hmm. don't you think? Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah. Palm Springs Noir was great, by the way. I really enjoyed Alex Espinosa's story. I know he's my former student, but Alex Espinosa and Todd Goldberg, man, those guys are writing at the height of their powers too. They're mm-hmm. both so good. And um, it's interesting because when I was writing Mecca, I mean, the title Mecca comes from the city in the Coachella Valley, Mecca. Yes. And yes. I've been going to Coachella since I was five. My mom was obsessed with the desert because she was from a cold place, Switzerland. And she and my dad, my stepdad, who's from Canada, also a cold place. <laughs> they loved going to the desert in the summer. And there were five of us kids. And we'd be like, what are we doing here? <laughs> Why are we out in, the, in Indio in August buying fresh dates? And my mom would be like, because they, they, taste, they taste very good when they're fresh. And we're like, okay, it's 125. <laughs> we're going to die. So how did they end up in Riverside? Uh, well, my mom's stepmom, um, my mom's mom died when she was only nine, and she had a terrible, mean stepmother that scared everyone. But my stepmother was head nurse at Kaiser Steel in Fontana, mm-hmm. the, like the original Kaiser Permanente building. Barbara was tiny, so they lived in Fontana, and my mom um, ended up. Le- she only, they lived in a trailer, and mm-hmm. my mom was like, "I'm not living in a trailer." So she left. She ran away, and she moved into a boarding house, a rooming house um, in Riverside. My real dad came to get a $50 loan from her at the savings and loan bank she worked at, Household Finance. And then he asked her out and he was already married and had two kids. So this seems like an incredibly bad idea. And um, he was sleeping in his car because he was on strike from Boeing. And yet she married him and she had me and then she was pregnant with my brother. And then he left. And then my mom had met this very nice Canadian man at her job. He also worked at household finance and they became citizens together. Like they ran into each other again during the citizenship ceremony and classes at the Riverside courthouse. It's pretty funny. <laughs> anyway, that's how they got here. And I was literally born, you know, three blocks from where I'm sitting now, um, which is funny because when you and I are talking about character and landscape, I often think of some of our favorite writers like Eddie Smith, remember A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And I loved Sounder um, by William Armstrong. I really loved Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman by Ernest J. Gaines. But those were the books I read growing up, you know, at the Riverside Public Library. And I always, always, always wanted to escape into a novel. Um, and so I feel really lucky that like people write to me all the time now and say, you know, I know Southern California so vividly and so intimately because of, you know, your nine books. And that makes me really happy. So you left for a brief time for graduate school and then you came back. Yes. Why did you come back? uh, Because we were poor. (laughs) And I was already married. You know, I was 22 when I got married. And then that year we studied, I mean, I studied with James Baldwin. Dwayne worked at a juvenile institution. He always was a correctional officer. Mm-hmm. And um, he wrecked the car. We didn't even have a car. Uh, it was cold. And we didn't know anybody. And Boston and, and Amherst were very, very racist. We had a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I didn't even stay for graduation. We had bought a car for 500 bucks from an Algerian dude. We got in the car. And it took us a week to get home because the car broke down every day. 
it broke down for the last time in front of my dad's house. And um, that was it. And we always said we were going to go do this, that, and the other, but you know, we didn't have any money. And so I started teaching at um, Inland Empire Job Corps and -hmm. trying to write my first book. And he got a job. He got several jobs. In fact, one of his first jobs was at a correctional institution in the desert, um, Mm -hmm. right, right where Whitewater is. And that was the beginning of me writing about the desert because I used to have to go pick him up um, and drop him off. And he just told me such stories about the desert. So that's where a lot of the stories from Akaboogie came from. Um, and that was published when I was 29. And mm-hmm. I just had my first baby when I was 28. And I was pregnant with my second baby when Akaboogie came out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, after that, I mean, just never left. And I always feel as if there are endless amounts of amazing stories to write about here. So mm-hmm. I've never been tempted to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And plus our family's here and when you're, you know, when you're that deeply enmeshed in everything, how can you leave? How can you leave? I'd love to hear you read from Mecca. Oh, that'd be, that'd be fun. Let's hear it. Uh, actually, what, what's, I wrote this, this, this is the very beginning, Fuego Canyon. It's about, um, it's about the Santa Ana winds. And the other day I was, I was writing, I was re- working on the sequel to Mecca, Mecca. And of course the wind came up and it was like 103 or 104 that day. And here came the smoke. My whole house was filled with smoke mm-hmm. because I really do live. I live just a block and a half from the Santa Ana river bottom mm-hmm. and it's always starting on fire. Um, so I was thinking about this um, part the other day and it'd be really nice to read this. This is from the very beginning of Mecca. Um, this is called Fuego Canyon. Okay. And Johnny Frias is on his uh, motorcycle. He's, he's working and it takes place in, the Santa Ana River Canyon between Yorba Linda and Corona. The wind started up at 3 a.m. the same way it had for hundreds of years. The same way I used to hear the blowing so hard around our little house in the canyon that the loose windowsills sounded like harmonicas. The old metal weather stripping played like the gods pressed their mouths around the screens in the living room where I slept when I was growing up. After I got off work this morning, the wind took a break. And I was knocked out for a few hours, waking up to hear Rose Sotelo's radio next door, playing ranchero music, tubas and trumpets thumping against the stucco, her canaries worried in their little songs. But now that I was back on shift, the Harley was pushing hard against the biggest gusts, the Santa Ana's blowing crazier than ever, the way they did in the afternoons, beards from the nap. Brazilian pepper trees, the ones that grew in every vacant lot or frontage road area, along the 91 and 55 freeways, had those long branches like ferns or seaweed. And when the wind blew them sideways like skirts, I could see homeless encampments under a lot of the trees. It was a Thursday in October, Santa Ana winds, 94 degrees, fire weather. People were three layers of pissed off. Everyone hated Thursday. Wednesday was hump day, but Thursday was when people drove like they wanted to kill each other. Today, everyone was thinking of Halloween, the women wondering what sexy costume to wear for parties now that grown-ups had taken over the holiday, the men pissed that the daughters had lost, even though they were supposed to be the boys of October, and now the 2019 baseball season was over. The wind. Every few minutes, dust and trash flew across the lanes. The fall winds always made me think of my mother, holding me tight in the old redwood chair my father had tied to the porch railing 
up in Fuego Canyon, near the Chino Hills, where the Santa Anas blew in the black night when they always started. And my first memory, her talking to me before dawn, the gusts so strong it felt like our little house would go rolling down the canyon like a tumbleweed, the horses snorting in the barn, and my father down in the orange groves, making sure the trees didn't dry out. Nothing else is for sure but the wind, my mom would say, while the eucalyptus leaves and bark flew past us. We might not get rain, Miho, for a whole year, but we always get the Santa Ana. Lovely. I love that. What a great beginning. And <clears throat> I wanted to ask you about your first sentence, too, and how, well, what exactly is my question? It's like, when you're working on the beginning, do you keep going back to that first page and that first sentence and getting it just right? Or does it come out the right way the first time and you just keep going? Because that, you know, what you do with sound in that first sentence is wonderful. You know, the loose window fills. It's a good craft question, Barbara. Like it really is. Because it's like, I mean, that's literally what I was doing yesterday when I finally got my brain a little bit back from COVID. It, I think for me, this house, this old house, you know, which used to be an orange grove, like, mm. right, there's still a ditch on the side. Like I still have rights to run my pigs down to the Santa Ana River if I want to. <laughs> so I choose not to because, because that's where we park our car. Um, but when the wind used to blow when my kids were little, the wind would blow so hard that it sounded like a harmonica in their bedroom. And it was like this giant angry God was blowing on their window screens because the windows were so old and so loose. So like that's just always been on my mind. But the wind, the way we know it, like it's so strange. It, if it says the Santa Ana winds will start tonight, they start up at like two or three a.m. and it's always this absolute shock, and it wakes you up, right? And you you start hearing branches hit the house or gates, and then it takes a break. And I remember when my when I was walking home from school, right at three o'clock, and we'd be walking home, and I walked home through the orange groves and over a canal bridge, you know, like that's where I lived. Oh my gosh, the wind would be so strong. They would all, my friends would always grab me and say, if anybody blows away, it's going to be her. Look at her. She's so little. <laughs> they would hold on to me. They were sure I was going to blow away. And so I think once you get into that imaginative idea and you can see it, the, for me, the sentence would come out pretty much the right way. Like that first paragraph was just a joy to write. The mm -hmm. harder, much harder part for me is plot. Um, I knew this plot would be about Johnny's secret, that he had killed that man mm -hmm. in the canyon mm -hmm. and that he's a cop and that he has never been able to tell anybody. And like to carry that kind of secret, you know, so many of us as humans, as humans, we have one or two things that you've never told anybody. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, people tell me these secrets. <laughs> and so I know about some something like this, you know, and I know about, other things. And so I just often think the hardest part for me is to try to figure out the plot, not the actual like sentence level, but the plot. And today um, I'm working on this new, on Johnny Frias again. And it's really funny. There are so many different things that happen to my friends who are, you know, dispatchers, or I have a lot of friends who are nurses. And so right now I'm writing about COVID. And it's weird because I wrote about COVID for Mecca 
-hmm. and I'd had COVID in April, 2020, but this time I had it worse in a different way. I've had it, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I, I feel differently, but writing about COVID last time it's because all my nurse friends, they would be walking to the hospital because they didn't want to get the germs in their car. They only had one car and they didn't want their husband or their kids getting in that car. Mm-hmm. And they would walk to the hospital, which is right down the street. And they would linger at the fence. You know, we'd be six feet apart and they would just tell me about the things they saw. And so hearing the way they saw things, it was easy for me to write those things down. Mm-hmm. And so I'll never forget like my friend who still walks by every night, my friend, Marcia, um, now we've got this new surge. And so we're talking about it, but, but, you know, when COVID was at its height, it was December, 2020 hmm. and it was the worst. Remember that's when you saw people being triaged out in parking lots. Right. And she would tell me I'm walking through these tents and I'm walking through a gift shop and there's people in there. And I walk to the ICU and there's these men and they're all lying on their stomachs. And, you know, men don't like to sleep on their stomachs. Mm-hmm. And big men, especially, and that just broke my heart. And then Dwayne, my ex-husband, he got COVID November of this past year. And he had to sleep on his stomach. And I'd written about it. And it was just the strangest feeling Mm. because I called the ambulance for him and I took care of him. And just to think about that, you know, the layers. And it is true, like some people write poetry and some people write fantasy and some people write uh, romance and... um, for me, I'm always trying to process how scary everything is to try to do that with the beauty of language. So mm. that's a good question. It's really good. Do you do you keep notebooks and, and write down similes and metaphors? and? No, I don't. But I just write down, like I have stacks and stacks of legal pads. Like this is how I write my books. Mm-hmm. I don't write on the computer first. Like I have stacks and stacks of legal pads and then I have little post-its everywhere. The one thing that I do write down is like I was telling you, he's busy getting pie-eyed every night at the watering hole. I saved that one because it you're just a shadow of your former self. <laughs> and then like I was fit to be tied. You know what I mean? Like I'll write these little things down, but um I write still by hand a lot of the time, but I don't write down the similes or, or whatever that, that comes out um, fairly um, naturally. But yeah, like the, again, the interesting thing is I have to write down um, like a map. I always have to make a map. And I, I did the same thing for Mecca as well. Do you do that at first before you even begin? I No, like I start out with these characters and then, yeah, I start getting into it and I'm like, okay, now where is this in the Chino Hills? Like, what are the canyons? Mm-hmm. So if you write, if you were to drive down the 91 from Riverside to you, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're passing like Green River Canyon where there's right. a golf course. And I mean, I've known all these since I was a little kid. Right. And we used to like ride our bikes down there, but there's Green River Canyon then there's Cole Canyon road and there's Cole Canyon. Right. And then there's Gypsum Canyon, mm-hmm. Brush Canyon, Box Canyon, and you end up at Carbon Canyon road. Mm-hmm. And that goes up from like Yorba Linda and it goes over the Chino Hills and it goes into Pino. And that's just think about that. That's an old Serrano walking trail mm-hmm. that is now like a two lane road. That's a commuter shortcut. So mm-hmm. I, 
I tend to like, I really love making a little map. Yeah. To see, I've done that for each book. Hmm. Um, I especially had to do that for high wire moon. Mm -hmm. um, some of the characters from high wire moon show up here and, mm -hmm. and which is funny. I had to do that for high wire moon and I had to do that for a million nightingales, which was set in Louisiana. Hmm. And then, so writing longhand, why do you, why do you start that way? I just think that's how I was trained. You know, my mom gave me my little typewriter that I still have in my bedroom, Smith, little Smith Corona. She gave me that for when I graduated from high school, I was 17 when I graduated. So, I mean, I loved typing, but typing was always work. Like I was a secretary and then I was a clerk and then I was a sports writer and then computers showed up when I was, you know, at USC, right? When I was typing, but mm -hmm. I always thought of typing on the computer or typing as work. And I always thought of my fiction writing as like something I just did for myself. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying I never type on the computer, right. but I always begin. I almost always begin with, you know, something that, that I write down that comes to me at whatever time. And I, I mean, it might come to me like in the middle of the night, but okay. You want to know this one? This is really funny. I wouldn't show this to anybody else, girl. <laughs> so my neighbor came over, it was about a month and a half ago, um, Sergio Delgado and his wife is Priscilla. And Priscilla and I went to high school together and Sergio was a little older than us. And Priscilla was a little older than me. And they've lived on the next corner 30 we've, I, we've lived by each other for 34 years but like literally we went to school together so Sergio came over and he was trying to catch a gopher for me and then it was really funny because he's like well I mean you know I already took care of mine and I knew what he was saying and then he just went like this right so he shoots his gophers but like he can't be shooting my gophers and I don't want him to shoot my gophers but I the gopher was was unfortunately had fleas and I was afraid he's going to get on my dog so Sergio's sitting there trying to dig. He's digging and he's putting in a gopher trap. And he starts talking to me about the nuns. Literally, Dwayne comes over and they both went to the same Catholic school, Our Lady of Guadalupe Shrine. And they were like, remember the nuns? Dwayne was like, the nuns used to beat me. And Sergio said, well, I like to chew gum. And he's like, and I couldn't stop chewing gum, Dwayne. And so they would take, they would make you take the gum out and they would put your nose against the wall for two hours. You couldn't, if they could put the ruler between your nose and the wall during that two hours, you got another hour. And I was just like, I'm sorry, what's happening? And he and Dwayne are like, yeah. And, and Sergio was like, your back, your neck, your shoulders, everything. He'd say your, your eyes were just focused on this crack because you had to keep your nose against the wall because you had chewed gum. And I just, I had to write it down because I was just like, that's like this vivid memory. And Sergio said, so I chew gum every day. I still chew. He's 65, Barbara. And he's like, I chew gum every day. You know what? Because nobody can stop me now. I <laughs> <laughs> not write that down. That night I was just sitting there right. and I was like, like who, who of our children would ever even know about that if I didn't write it down? Mm -hmm. that you got caught chewing one piece of double bubble because that's what he wanted to chew remember <laughs> like that's such a in a way that's such an artifact of our times isn't it that you were chewing double bubble which is a terrible thing and you couldn't hide it and that you had to put your nose against the wall yeah and touch the wall hmm. he said it happened to him so many times 
Well, that reminds me of something that was said in the, I think this was the New York Times review of um, Mecca. And I love this line, um, at the heart of most of her work, your work, is the idea that one's relationship to a place plays perhaps the most vital role in shaping how we understand the world. I love that. Yeah, I think that was really nice. Caribbean Fragosa lives mm-hmm. in Almonte, and um, it was a lovely review. I had never, I had never met her until a few months after the book review came out. Um, but she really did. She like, she's really got me in the heart when she said that because I believe that's true too. And um, like I said, if I were to talk to Sergio, you know, mm-hmm. we would know each other in a way. Wayne and Sergio and Priscilla and me standing, the four of us, having gone to the same high school, having lived here our whole lives, we would have a whole code of language that even our own children can't understand. Sergio and Priscilla's oldest son died suddenly of a brain aneurysm Mm -hmm. at 30. And their younger son, who went to school with my middle daughter, he's been in the Marines since he was, he joined when he was 18. But the way we look at the world is a way that looks, it, it come from this place, right? Like Priscilla's mom worked in the um, chicken packing house. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, my mom used to have to pick crops in Canada when she was 15. That's why she didn't get to go to high school. So I love, I love that you read that. I was thinking the other day, one of my characters um, in the book is Ali Sadat. He's from Afghanistan. And he's forever shaped by leaving Afghanistan, Hmm. you know, when he was so young and coming to Southern California. And he's one of my favorite characters um, Mm -hmm. brought about is Mm -hmm. because he's forever shaped by being the only male in his family and having three younger sisters that have to find husbands. And just the notion he works out of 7-Eleven, you know, and like how many guys do we know that that are brilliant men? who work at a 7-Eleven or who work at a laundromat or, you know, work at a liquor store Mm. in Southern California because they came from somewhere else. Somewhere else. And that's definitely because my parents came from somewhere else and were so, you know, poor and had to start out in the same difficult way Mm -hmm. um, that you kind of look at, like when, when I go to the liquor store, you know, I talk to the person working at the liquor store and always get to hear about that journey. That's a very specific American thing, I think, don't you? I do. I I was thinking also about your stuff, your work, and what you were saying earlier about um, you had, there's so many stories, there's so many stories where you live and no no end to them. And it reminded me of a Flannery O'Connor quote where she said, if you make it through your childhood, you have enough material to last a lifetime, right? I mean, like, you don't have to go looking for stories. You don't have to, you know, people go, oh, I haven't been anywhere. What do I have to write about? Well, what's around you, right? I mean, Flannery O'Connor is someone I was thinking about the other day because, of course, her character in in, um, Everything That Rises uh, Must Converge um, is obsessed with, with shoes. And um, that they also remember a good man is hard to find, mm-hmm. like the older lady and the whole, all the class stuff going on there. I was thinking the other day about Larry Brown and how much I missed him and his work. Um, I loved his novel, Joe. I loved his short story, Samaritans. And he was from Tunica, Mississippi. 
and he was a sharecropper's son, and he lived in Tunica, Mississippi his whole life. And nobody wrote like Larry Brown. And my, one of my other favorite writers that I was reading last week was Kent Harriff. Do you remember oh, yeah. Kent Harriff? Yeah. He died. He was so young too. He was only 71. But he was writing about, you know, the plains, the high plains of Colorado, which is where my dad, my real father was from. Hmm. No one writes about that, that kind of plains, you know, winter raising cattle like Kent Harriff. So I agree. I, I agree with that. Like people, I have this face. So people tell me their life story all the time. Like every, every, my girls always joke, mom, here's like four life stories every week. <laughs> I can be at the grocery store and someone will tell me their life story. It's just my face. But my, of, of my children, you know, who has that? My middle kid, Delphine, mm. it happens to her. She lives in New York right now. She works at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. She's a fellow there. Mm-hmm. It happens to her all the time. She'll go to the bodega because like she's obsessed <laughs> with like, you know, we have like the liquor store, but like the bodega is different. Somebody will come up to her and tell her their life story. And she'll call me and be like, mom, how did you give this to me? And I say, I don't know. It doesn't <laughs> happen to the, to the oldest one. It doesn't Got happen it. to the youngest one, but it happens to Delphine. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a great thing to have, but you're also carrying all these stories. And mm-hmm. some of them are very grief filled. So I feel like I have too many things to write about. And when people, especially during COVID, when people are like, I haven't left my house for two years. And, you know, for my neighborhood, everybody's had COVID. At mm. least once. I have my neighbor across the street, Jim Calderon, died of COVID. Mm. I just made cookies for his widow. You know, that left with two high school kids. My neighbor Mario was in the first hundred people to have COVID mm. in Southern California. And he he survived. So I cooked. There's five kids and three grownups next door. And um, everybody has to go to work. You know, Mario installed air conditioners. My neighbor Johnny Orta across the street, his uncle Frank was one of the first motorcycle cops in Riverside. He was a big, he was really a big influence. It was me writing about Johnny Frias because Frank Orta and his family used to work um, with Dwayne at Juvenile Hall. Frank Orta used to sit right out in front of my house on his motorcycle. He died of COVID last year. So Mm -hmm. like we've lost an enormous amount of people. So when people are like, um, you know, I can't write, I haven't left my house. There are no stories to tell. Kind of hard. It's hard to have the sad stories. It is, mm-hmm. but we've lost a lot of people, and that's what I'm trying to write about. With, you know, really with, um, especially with um, Lorette and grief. The two characters that I'm there, they show up in the next book. Lorette works at Saint Bernardine Hospital. Mm-hmm. She's in the heart of it, and she fits on all my nurse friends. You know, before we go, I wanted to ask you about your office. And if you're listening to the podcast, you can't see Susan's wonderful office and you'll have to go to the YouTube channel and watch, um, at least take a look at, at this, uh, this talk we're having, but you have the most colorful office. Tell me about it. <laughs> it's because my, my little house was so, it's an old farmhouse and it was two bedrooms and one bath. I mean, that's what I wrote about in In the Country of Women, too. There was no air conditioning. There was no shower, only a tub when we bought it in 1988. And um, no air conditioning, no heat. And the man who had owned it was 95 when he sold it to us. And he he and his wife raised four kids. And there was just one little bedroom in the middle and one in the back. But this room was like a parlor. So like you see the sliding doors, like this would be like your music room or your parlor. So we were always like, how is there a parlor, a living room, and a dining room, but the bedrooms are this big? 
but yeah, there's no closet in here. So everyone always comes in here to work, especially all my kids did their homework in here during COVID. We had, I had four people. Like I had my youngest daughter was working for Amazon at the kitchen table. So she's been <laughs> taking meetings with like Michael Connolly and Walter Mosley and Idris Elba. And we'd be trying to make oatmeal. She'd be like, that was fun. <laughs> but yeah, Delphine would work in here. Kumi, my son-in-law uh, works for YouTube. <laughs> he was working in the back. But what I have is this beautiful um, behind me. Oh, hold on one second. You know, I have to plug my computer in. Um, this is like my former student table. I love this table. So Alex Espinosa, Stillwater Saints, Vanessa Hua, Forbidden City, Michael Jaime Becerra, um, Every Night is Ladies Night. And then that whole pile um, is like former students, Keenan uh, Norris, Edgar Gomez. Just, I, I'm so like proud of, of them. And then on this side, Alex actually brought me, um, he brought me Our Lady of Guadalupe, this one up here. That's from the um, shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico City. And Alex and I, like, that's our, something we think about a lot. That's our totem. And yeah, there's pictures of my kids, but like, I just, when people say I don't have time to read, whether it's my students or like fellow writers <laughs> or whoever, I just always think, but that's our job. Like I love, yeah. so I, when people are like, see the office and they're like, have you read all those books? I mean, you have to look at the top mm -hmm. up there. There's Ishmael Reed, Wanda Coleman. But yeah, of course. I mean, I read all the time, just like you, Barbara. Like, and then this stack right here is just what I was talking to you about. Like, this is my original copy of Sula. Mm -hmm. From this is one of my most treasured possessions because I read this when I was eleven. I got this at the grocery store. You know, it was seventy-five cents. Right. Yeah. I think I have that copy too. It's just, it was at the grocery store in the, like, the yeah, rack. Right. And you know what? The funny thing is, <clears throat> I made this pile the other day because somebody had asked me to write an essay, and I was working on this essay. This is the same thing. This is Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. Look how old this is. Mm -hmm. I got these, you know, at the, at the grocery store. And then this means a lot to me. These two books were given to me by Bell Hooks hmm. before she was Bell Hook. Mm -hmm. I was 17 and I was in her class at USC and her name was Gloria Jean Watkins. Hmm. And she gave me these two books from her personal library in her office one day. And that just, that meant the world to me. So I always try to find the perfect book for my students too. But yeah, like, just to have these books nearby while I'm working means a lot. And then look at this one. <laughs> oh, there's my mom being Heidi, right? Except for nobody came to rescue her. So yeah, um, thanks for asking. Cause I love, I love the fact that people do always laugh and they're like, you couldn't possibly have read all these books. And I'm like, I don't do anything. <laughs> I do like, I read all the time. It's, it's my joy in the world still to find a new book. Um, and to reread some of the old ones. So like I said, rereading Michael Connelly's Black Echo. Mm -hmm. And then I read The Dark Hours, you know, his new one with uh, yeah. the Renee Ballard. Yeah. I really enjoy this, this new series um, very much. And then I, 
I think um, the other thing I read last week, um, I read Manuel Munoz he has a brand new book coming out called The Consequences. So I read that in manuscript form. I read somebody that you should have on your show, Tony Ann Johnson. Hmm. Um, her book is coming out in a couple months. I read that in manuscript. It's the Flannery O'Connor um, prize winner chosen by Roxane Gay. See, mm -hmm. I'm always going to plug somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, but that book is really good. It's called Light Skin Gone to Waste. My girls know. Like, they're like, mom's going to read now. And I think what I love is that even though Rosette um, you know, works in the film industry, my 26-year-old, she read all the Tessa Dare. She read all the Bridgerton books, the Julia Quinn books. She mm -hmm. told us about Bridgerton two years before it happened. She'd already read all the books. <laughs> so I love that about all three of my girls love to read. It makes me very happy. Well, you know, and like you said, you know, if, if you're a writer, that's part of the job. And it should be the most joyous part of your job. Mm -hmm. I always tease my students, if you don't have time to read, I just want you to think about Kobe and LeBron. Like Kobe and LeBron, they play the whole basketball game. They, they get themselves back in shape and they go home and they watch game film. Mm -hmm. And they want to watch how somebody else is shooting that three, right? right? And then they watch other people's and shooting the three, then they shoot the three. I'm like, all people who love what they do, do it all the time. And all whether you're an athlete or a writer, if you're a singer, of course you're listening to other mm -hmm. people's music. So I don't think writing should be the thing where people go, I don't have time to read. I'm like, right. yeah, anyway. Yeah. Well, before we go, I, you know, I, I always like to end with um, advice or maybe advice you were given that has always stayed with you or what you do when you hit a wall and you don't know what to write next, you know, what do you, what do you do? I think like, like many writers, I mean, my kids are, they come and go, they're grown. My porch is, is a place of great solace for me. But like, even today, like my mom will sit on the porch and she'll tell me something because she has dementia. She'll tell me something that she's never told me before. And it's always fascinating. And then I'm going to take her back. She lives, lives in assisted living right now. And then Dwayne will come over. And he told me last week something about my dad that my dad told him about having $10,000 in cash hidden in a closet. I'm like, I never knew that money was there. And he said, I know he told me because in case anything happened, he wanted me to know. I'm like, I'm sorry, what's happening? <laughs> the first thing I can say is, listen, I'm a very good listener. Um, I think a lot of times writing is about being able to listen and hearing something and, and being able to recreate dialogue because you're a good listener. But when I'm stuck, I will, I will say that my favorite thing in the world um, is to watch narrative television as well. Like mm -hmm. I do love to read, but I don't like unscripted, which is funny because Rosette teases me about it, but to watch a really good like narrative television show, you know, um, I just, I really like the British mysteries because it, I like the way the plot moves. So I will watch some TV and I'll watch a great, you know, series like Stranger Things. Um, when we were sick two weeks ago, Delphine and I were sick together and her husband and they got better because I took care of them and got it. We watched the Marvel three, three series from the Marvel universe, which is what I do when I'm with Delphine. Mm. I watched Moon Knight with her. And of course, Moon Knight was about a family and a secret. And I love that, like with each of my girls, I have, there's a series that they want me to watch or show. Rosette, we've always watched Formula One racing. Um, <laughs> she likes Unscripted and that's, those are great shows. So yeah, sometimes I enjoy 
like watching TV with my daughters and talking about how narrative works and that frees up my brain for when I'm going back to my own work. Well, as always, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're such a good reader and it's always fun to talk to you. And I'm glad we got to talk about the noir thing because we both have quite the fondness for that. Very fun. I'm looking forward to getting opera noir that uh, Mary Nana Amadank was. That's what I'm ordering for myself this weekend too. It's coming out, huh? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Thank you. All right. Super fun. That was Susan Strait, author of Mecca. This episode was produced on July 12th, 2022. Music and sound editing by Travis Barrett. If you want to know more about the show or you'd like to reach out to my co-host Marie Stone or me, email me at penonfire at earthlink.net. Thank you for listening. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and this is Writers on Writing. Mm-hmm.